you say to the Americans that are anxious over the fact that President Trump has yet to concede and what that might mean for the country? Well, um, I just think it's an embarrassment, um, quite frankly. Uh, the only thing that, uh, how can I say this uh, tactfully? I, I think it will not help the president's legacy. But I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's all going to come to fruition on January 20th. And between now and then, my hope and expectation is that the American people are, do know and do understand that there has been a transition. Even among uh, Republicans who are people who voted for the president, I understand the sense of loss. I get that. But I think uh, the majority of the people who voted for the president, a lot voted for him, a significantly smaller number, but a lot voted for him. I think they understand that we have to come together. That was President-elect Joe Biden Tuesday, reacting to President Trump's continued refusal to acknowledge what has been clear since last weekend. He lost the election and will no longer be in office come next January 20. Yet it's not just Trump who stands to be embarrassed. His loyalists in Congress and his appointees in government continue to sustain the idea that the election is not over. The chief of the General Services Administration, Emily Murphy, is even refusing to release $6.3 million in federal funds for the Biden transition, while Attorney General Bill Barr authorizes federal prosecutors to pursue irregularities in the election even without any hard evidence of the kind of voter fraud that could change the outcome. We'll talk to Evan Osnos of The New Yorker about what this could mean for the incoming Biden administration, and more broadly, what kind of president Biden will be. And we'll talk to Yahoo News health contributor and Biden campaign advisor, Dr. Kavita Patel, about the prospects for the new COVID vaccine and what to expect from the Biden-Harris administration when it comes to dealing with the pandemic on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, the gulf between reality that Joe Biden won the election and the White House's head in the stand about the results is as striking as any I can imagine. I mean, it is just so bizarre to turn on the TV, every TV network now referring to President-elect Joe Biden, talking about the transition, talking about what Biden is going to do as president, while the incumbent president is off in his own world. It's... It, we are truly in bizarro land. Yeah, and you saw that gulf in Joe Biden's really first press conference since he's been president-elect. You know, the gulf between the man who is 
to become president, who is acting like a president, and the guy who's, uh, you know, uh, occupying the office right now, who is, I mean, acting crazy, frankly. And it's just, it's a striking thing. I noticed today, you know, a couple of things. Uh, You know, on the one hand, the Trump administration, um, the, the White House has sent word out to all of the departments and agencies that they need to get their 2021 budgets in order. Uh, for a release which, in February for, when for release Donald February. Trump will no longer be president. Right? Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, the international election observers that the Trump administration had invited in to observe this election to make sure everything was on the up and up. This is what the, it's the um, Organization of American States, which has been doing this for, you know, for decades. They reported back that, you know, there were everything was fine. There weren't irregularities uh, that, you know, could in any way affect uh, the outcome of, of the elections. So it is truly uh, bizarre what's going on. And meanwhile, I uh, just got an email about the March for Trump now scheduled for this Saturday all across the country. The president's supporters will be marching in Washington, D.C. and in state capitals across the country, demanding that uh, you know voter fraud be uncovered, that the election challenges go forth, uh, and to protect the uh, election integrity, as they say on their website. I don't know. I, you're the Italian scholar. Didn't like Mussolini like stage a big march on Rome to take power uh, back in the 1920s? Uh, is this the uh, Mussolini playbook we are seeing here? Yeah, but I think I think we are going from uh, tragedy to farce. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think uh, this is going to be a particularly effective march um, on Washington or Rome or anywhere. Look, this is what this is is uh, an, an exercise in a massive exercise in therapy for a president who lost an election and is having a hard time processing that, and I guess many of his uh, supporters as well. But it's got you know, potentially really damaging effects. Look at the decision by Bill Barr, the attorney general, to investigate potential fraud or irregularities. What he said, it was voter tabulation tabulation irregularities. irregularities. Right. And and the the memo that he wrote is, you know, kind of caveated to death. I mean, it it is pretty clear reading that thing. First of all, there is there's not a shred of evidence in that memo of actual irregularities taking place. And it's full of caveats as to why this really isn't going to end up having any impact and it's not going to having any, any impact on the out, outcome of the election. And so you can kind of laugh it off. He's just trying to placate President Trump. But it does have real impact. So, for example, th- this is the way it works. Trump throws a temper tantrum. He tweets. His kids go on about how the election was full of fraud and it was stolen and they actually won. And word gets back to Barr. Barr says, all right, well, I'll I'll go through the motions here and, you know, uh, authorize some kind of investigation that's never really going to go anywhere. But then Sean Hannity picks it up on Fox News, you know, breaking news. The Justice Department is now investigating allegations of fraud in the election so that then Trump can then tweet it to his 90 million, 100 and whatever million uh, followers on, on Twitter. And it takes on this kind of 
air of reality that is you know, grounded in absolutely nothing. And what does that do? That all has the effect of seriously undermining one of the most important institutions of our democracy, the vote. So there is a a sinister st- side to all of this, for sure. And, and worth noting that the Justice Department uh, lawyer in charge of the election crimes unit resigned over Barr's uh, memo, basically, uh, you know, because there are Justice Department rules uh, and uh, guidelines that govern when you investigate improprieties relating to elections. It's after the results have been certified. The results have not been certified yet. So this is, yeah, look, and Barr, Barr is saying, look, it, it, this is not going to affect the outcome because the everybody has already voted, but it is going to affect the acceptance of the outcome because as long as this just this department audit or whatever we call it continues, the Trump diehards will be able to point to it as grounds for not accepting Joe Biden as president. It's it is insidious when you think about the implications of it. I totally agree. I, I, I think Barr was just doing this to placate Trump for now. And this is all a manner of therapy for dealing with our childish president. But it does have an impact. In any case, we've got our new president to talk about, Joe Biden. And we've got an excellent person to do that, uh, Evan Osnos, who's out with this new book about Joe Biden. And uh, there is COVID still with us and a lot on that front. We'll be talking to Dr. Kavita Patel. So let's get to it. We now have with us Evan Osnos, a staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now, probably the best timed book that anybody could come out with at the moment. Uh, Evan, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me, guys. The book is a fascinating guide into what kind of president uh, Joe Biden might be, but I want to start out, actually, with a tweet uh, you posted yesterday suggesting that the president's refusal to accept the election and the support he's getting from his allies in Congress is tantamount to the new birtherism, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, what thrust Donald Trump onto the national stage as a potential president. Tell us what prompted you to write that and what parallels you're seeing there. I was struck by the ways in which this new you know, let's call it what it is, the sort of stolen election fantasy has become a mantra. It's becoming a kind of incantation which you can use to try to delegitimize a president even before he has done anything. And I think what we're seeing is that, and I, you know, I sense this in my interviews with folks who are Trump voters who are already adopting the liturgy on the stolen election. And that becomes a way of undermining whatever happens politically because there's this kind of origin myth of illegitimacy, which is what they did with Barack Obama. And of course, you know, and I will add that it's not it's not inconspicuous that there is a racial element. I, I was gonna say racist and that is what it is. There's a racist piece of this. Obviously Joe Biden is not the target of that, but by talking about quote unquote Philadelphia and quote unquote Camden, all of these are dog whistles that are designed to agitate a certain 
concern, a certain fear among listeners. And I think that's what we're going to hear a lot of over the course of the next few weeks and months. Evan, what we're seeing now obviously is not new and is something that Biden and his campaign have had to deal with during the course of this general election campaign, you know, whether, you know, it was conspiracy theories involving, you know, Hunter Biden or conspiracy theories involving Joe Biden himself and allegations of pedophilia, for example, which the Trump sons spread. Have you learned anything at all about how the Biden campaign dealt with this, you know, kind of creation of parallel realities. I'm just curious, because this mm-hmm. is a feature of politics today. Trump's not going away, and this phenomenon is not going away. Yeah, I will tell you that uh, when I spoke to now President-elect Biden over the summer, when I was working on this book, he said to me, I mean, he was right about this. He said, look, this is going to get very, very ugly. And he said, what really worries me most is that they're going to monkey around with the outcome, meaning essentially whether or not to dignify the the legitimate result of the count. And the interesting thing about that is Joe Biden's really not a participant in the social media era. So he kind of, you know, he knows that this is happening. He knows the toxicity of it, but he's not participating in it personally. And in some ways, I think that insulated him a bit from the full spectrum of what was being thrown at the campaign. But he felt it very acutely. Anybody who watched that debate and watched the look on his face when the subject turned to Hunter Biden can understand a little bit about how Joe Biden's head works, because that is a uniquely powerful way to attack him. And that's one of the reasons why they attacked him that way. Um, but I think, look, he is, the campaign was in a constant state of batting away what it regarded as sort of varying degrees of conspiracy thinking. Look, when you're dealing with a, with a significant number of Americans who believe that pedophile Democrat billionaires are conspiring to take down the United States government, this is a very different era than the one we were even contending with five or 10 years ago. I will say, though, you know, I have a piece in The New Yorker right now about the history of kind of this long running tussle between reason and the violence of language, the kind of violence to the seriousness of thought, which goes back really to before the Civil War. This is a teetering, seesawing battle. And we unfortunately, at the moment, it seems that reason is losing. As long as we're getting historical here, I'm going to take your birtherism uh, analogy (laughs) one step even grander. I think the uh, Trump defeat is going to be the new lost cause for Trump's America. And that for years now into the future, you know, we're going to be hearing, you know, the tales of the valiant struggle of Donald Trump against the uh, illegitimate uh, usurpers who have taken the election. For him, and who knows? Maybe we'll even see you know statues of William Barr and <laughs> and Steve Bannon and Rick Grinnell people throughout the uh, Trump states. But let's get to your book because it's really sort of a fascinating and nuanced portrait of our next president. And uh, you've been working on Biden, interviewing him for years before he was running for president. Tell us about how you first got on to um, wanting to spend time with Joe Biden. Did you expect we were going to be at this moment of uh, him as uh, president-elect? No, I can't pretend I had that powers of prognostication. The truth was, I got interested in him 
partly for basically for two reasons. I mean, to be honest about it, nobody was paying much attention to the vice presidency under Barack Obama, partly because you had this kind of, you know, there's a sort of solar power to the presidency himself, particularly President Obama. And the vice presidency, after all, is the most maligned office in Washington, D.C., where I live. And I was new to town in 2013. I moved back from all these years abroad. I'd been a foreign correspondent for a decade. I come back and Biden's involved in a lot of foreign policy. And so I said, I should go talk to this guy who's doing foreign policy. So I started writing about him in that lens. That's how I started interviewing him and you know, ended up, it was sort of a pattern where I'd go and talk to him about the things he was working on. And he of course was beginning to talk and think about 2016 at that point. And I will make an embarrassing admission, which is that he started talking to me in 2014 about how he sensed that the Democratic Party wasn't doing enough to address the concerns of working class voters. There was this kind of real pain he saw. And I remember thinking, I don't know this guy, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm not sure this is going to be a real big issue in 2016. And I didn't mention it. I didn't even quote it in a piece that I wrote at the time. And of course, he was anticipating what then later became the Trump phenomenon, the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, and on and on. So you know, and I kind of returned to the topic over the years. I, I went back and saw him eventually to, as he was beginning to gain steam in the presidential race. And the one area in which I think I did have a sense that this was a more serious candidacy was early this year when, you know, obviously all of that, he was sort of often being described as this, it was this kind of floundering candidate. He couldn't catch up with what, he was misstating his text message address on television and and that was the story. And that missed what I thought to be this kind of key data point that the Biden campaign was kind of subtly revolving around. The sort of central axis of their campaign was that most Democrats today describe themselves as moderate or conservative Democrats. And even if the press tends to gravitate to the kind of frontier of the party, that's not actually where most of the people are. And that was the theory of the case. I want to follow up on that, Evan, because, uh, you know, you said something before about how Biden wasn't someone who was all over Twitter. And I think uh, you quote Kate Bedingfield, his uh, communications director, saying we weren't trying to win the Twitter wars and talked about how that made him a little more insulated. But one of the, I think, shrewdest observations in the book is that he did in this campaign the opposite of what most politicians do, most presidential candidates do. Uh, instead of taking more ideological positioning you know, in the primary and then tacking to the center, he literally did the, the opposite of, of that. And I wonder why he did that and what that tells us about Joe Biden as a, as a politician and what that might tell us about how he would govern. Well, it's interesting because there's two ways to read it, right? One is to say, all right, this guy is insincere and unmoored from any core commitments. Because how could he go into the race saying his primary ambition is to just remove Donald Trump? And by the end of the, by the, end of the campaign, or certainly after the primaries, he's saying he wants to be the most transformative president since FDR. And I, I think you sort of heard for a long time people saying, well, which one is it? And honestly, I think the answer, if you think about it for a moment and talk to people involved, is the circumstances changed in a profound way. And what he had to do, meaning all of a sudden he's in a, you know, instead of being in a primary election in which he's trying to consolidate these multiple sub-caucuses, he's facing a moment in which the country is confronted by a massive defining generational risk in COVID. It's facing this reckoning over racial injustice. And he is summoned to that. He's kind of called forward. And this goes back to his very basic psychology, I think, as a political person, which is he's always kind of seen himself as wanting to do something great in politics. I, I think that's one of the things that 
that's a kind of, you know, in a way that can be a criticism too, because let's be honest, you know, we sometimes imagine we want our presidents to have these transcendent moral missions. And his was slightly different in the beginning. He got into it because he thought, you know, it'd be great to have a big impact on history, whatever that impact is. And here it is, the moment conspired to give him that opportunity. It was actually President Obama, who I spoke to over the summer, who said to me, look, I don't think Joe Biden has changed in saying that he's now suddenly wants to be FDR. I think the circumstances have changed. And that's a profound truth here. As you uh, point out, Biden, as vice president, had a lot of sway on foreign policy. He was given major foreign policy assignments in Ukraine, in Iraq. But it is, you also go into the perspective of somebody he served closely with, Robert Gates, who was the Secretary of Defense under Obama after serving that under President Bush, who said of Biden, he's a man of integrity and uh, one of those rare people you can turn to for help in a personal crisis. Still, I think he's been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades. Yeah. That's a pretty sweeping and eye-popping statement. It is. And I went to Biden to explore that question. I said, so what do you make of that? And it was honestly, it was like pulling the cork out of a champagne bottle. <laughs> he just went off on it. And he said, and it was clear to me that he had been kind of storing up a very specific frustration with that critique. And the, and the frustration goes all the way back to 1991, when Joe Biden voted against Bob Gates as CIA director on the basis, as Biden said at the time, that Gates had been a Kremlinologist at CIA who had failed to anticipate the end of the Soviet Union. It's always personal, <laughs> it's isn't always it? Personal. I mean, behind <laughs> these grand foreign policy debates, there's that personal element yep, to it that exactly. drives the conversation. And I think, you know, what's interesting to me, Michael, too, is if you look yeah. at recently, right, and the final days of the election, this issue came back into the fore. People reminded of, were reminded of Bob Gates' critique. And Bob Gates wrote into the Wall Street Journal and said, hold on, let me be clear here. I had my critiques of Joe Biden's policy, but I am also telling you in an unambiguous terms that he is the right man for the presidency and, and Donald Trump is unfit and unprepared and doing damage to American security. Very truly yours. Bob Gates. <laughs> yeah, right. But let's let's say uh, examine what Gates's critique is. Here. And yeah. I'll start off with my own sort of personal experience. The longest interview I ever had with Biden was when I was working on the book about the run up to the Iraq war. Uh, this is after the war has gone south. And, you know, Biden spent a whole lot of time, uh, you know, with this tortured analysis of uh, how he tried to, you know, modify the Iraq war resolution with Colin Powell and, you know, rein Bush in a bit. But at the end of the day, he voted for the Iraq war. So that's got to be sort of exhibit A of him being wrong about a major foreign policy issue. Yep. And I think that experience, it's absolutely right. And I think that experience was a bit of a turning point for him in the pattern of his decision-making around the application of American force. You see this distinct pivot in the years that followed where he gets into the Obama White House and he was opposed to, for instance, the surge in Afghanistan. He was opposed to U.S. intervention in Libya. He was wary of the raid to go after Osama bin Laden, not because he didn't think we should go after bin Laden, but he was worried about the intelligence and the political 
aftershocks if it didn't go well, as he said to Obama at the time, if this doesn't work, you're a one-term president. So you actually see this trend line where he becomes more conservative, sort of lowercase c, in his use of American force compared to earlier in his career. And some of that, I think, was also the imprint of Obama's long view politics and don't do stupid stuff. And all of that, I think, has shaped some of his what we could call his kind of commander in chief instincts uh, that will be significant going so forward. So what does this tell us about what we can expect uh, from a Biden foreign policy? I think it tells us that the idea that he is a simple agent of the national security state is a misreading. I think he is a guy who has been, look, he was chairman of the foreign relations committee. He believes in the power of American power, but he is also chastened a bit. I think he's chastened by the biggest failure of his Senate career, which was voting for, arguably voting for the war in Iraq, but we can talk about the crime bill. And I think he was chastened also by the recognition that Donald Trump sent American young men and women into harm's way with a kind of reckless disregard, a kind of personal unfamiliarity with what it means to serve that offended Biden. I mean, his son, Beau Biden, his late son, after all, of course, was was in the armed forces. I mean, he. this is personal for Biden to some degree now. And I think he takes this more seriously than he did even 20 years ago. I think that's just a fact. Evan, I, I want to explore some of his kind of personality traits, what you learned about him and how, how they may have evolved over the years. Any political reporter of a certain age came to know Joe Biden, if they didn't know him personally, from uh, Richard Ben Kramer's portrait um, in What It Takes. And so it's the driven by these, you know, profound insecurities, the, um, the inability to, to kind of control his talking, filling up, taking up all the oxygen in a room, and a lot of other, you know, great qualities as well. But you got to know him in 2014. And there's a sense that a lot had changed by then and that he had evolved in terms of some of those characteristics. For one thing, he had made the decision to go work for Barack Obama. He never he had never worked for anybody before that. And so he had to submerge his ego. And then there was the tragic death of his son, Bo Biden. What did you learn about how he has evolved over the years? How has he changed and his ability to change? Yeah, that's probably the biggest surprise for me in the course of this project. I think like a lot of us, I kind of get these static images of, of people. I sort of think I understand their political psychology and how they make decisions. And one of the things that's unusual about him is his willingness to reflect on things after making some big mistakes. I mean, let's not pretend this is like, you know, some uh, platonic ideal of a guy kind of drifting from one revelation to another. I mean, this is hard-bitten knowledge. But there's a moment... I had an interview with Jill Biden at one point where she was reflecting on a conversation about the decision to go into the vice presidency at all. And Joe Biden at this point, it's 2008, he's been asked to become vice president and he said no. And the reason he said no was that he said, you know, look, I don't think I could really be a very good number two. And she said to him, look, you have said that you're committed to the idea of ending this war in Iraq, which after all you voted for, we have to put our minds back at the sort of tail end of the Bush administration here. You have said that you're committed to civil rights. You're being asked to help the first black president succeed. And you're going to say no. Why? And he said, because, you know, I'm not sure I, I, I could be any, I don't want to have a boss. I haven't had a boss in 36 years. And how, how would I deal with that? And she said, grow up. And I think there's something 
you know, any of us with a spouse knows that I would say the truth of that, uh, of that dynamic. And I, you know, there are moments where you have to be reminded of that. But I, I mentioned that only sort of half kiddingly that if kiddingly is a word to say that, you know, this is a guy who is reckoning with the ways in which he has been wrong about things. And I, I probably the moment for me that was clearest was when I was talking to him about the killing of George Floyd and everything that flowed from that. And I said, what did you learn from that? And there are ways in which a politician could answer that question with a kind of tedious pablum of the usual kind. And he said, well, I learned I was wrong about something, which is that I grew up in this period in American life. I grew up in Wilmington, which was Jim Crow, Delaware. It was a period that was kind of suspended between North and South. And then I became the vice president to the first black president. And so for years, I've been telling this kind of parable, a kind of neat fable about how things are moving in the right direction on race. And what I realized in that video, watching that video with that, with George Floyd's face against that curb, he was very sort of vivid in his description of the video. He said, I realized that you can't extinguish hate, that it will hide, it'll hide under the rocks and it'll wait for a leader to give it oxygen and it'll come roaring back. And that really becomes, I think, a, a kind of little bit of a skeleton key into understanding how he really entered this race and, and why it mattered to him. So he is 78 years old. And, um, you know, there's a question of just how much somebody could change at that age. And, you know, I, I was struck in just reading the history, which you, you know, call uh you know, very adroitly, you know, going back to his early days as a senator from Delaware, where he was the a leading anti-busing crusader, aligned with people who were very much on the opposite side of the progressive argument in that over race, and, you know, all right through to the crime bill of 1994. I mean, I guess the way I look at it, he's a Paul. And he goes with, you know, what he senses is the politically smart thing for him to do at the time. But how do you read that evolution from where he was to what he was telling you now about George Floyd? I will say, you know, the New Yorker fact checkers, wherever they are, are screaming at me that I have to correct the fact that he is a spry 77 for another week or so. He oh, turn I'm sorry. Okay. Until November sorry. 20th. All right. Well, but thank you, know, you for correcting. <laughs> you can be skulled. We can get them as skullduggery fact checkers as well. They'll be a lot busier than at the New Yorker. Right? You know, I, I mean, Michael, you hit the nail on the head. Look, this is the thing about him that is, I think, that some people find slippery and find worrying, they say, well, what does he stand for? If he has moved this much over the course of his career, what does he believe in? I, I came to conceptualize it. I mean, the way I think about it now is that he is, as somebody said to me who worked in the White House for President Obama, worked alongside Biden, he said, look, Joe Biden is a nearly perfect weather vane for the center of the Democratic Party. And exactly. the center of the Democrat, you know. I like center, that, right? yes, yes. And the center of the Democratic Party moves. It moves on gay marriage. It moves on race. It moves on capitalism. And I think you see that in Joe Biden's life and in his record. And we have to decide, essentially, as a political culture, do we punish that as a sign of insincerity and hypocrisy? Or do we decide that he is a reflection of who we are? 
Well, and of course, he he moved ahead of the Obama administration on gay marriage in that famous, I think it was Meet the Press interview, and the Obama people, at their first reaction was they were apoplectic that he got ahead of them, and then they realized he was right. But it does raise an interesting question about how he will govern, because there, you know, it's, and it is how you define the Democratic Party. Is the Democratic Party the people who are on Twitter? Or is it a much broader party that actually has not moved as far as maybe we think they have because we're all on social media? So I'm curious how you think he will approach governing and um, navigating the different camps of, of, of the Democratic Party as he, uh, you know, as he moves into the White House. What is he going to do? Yeah, it's a really interesting one because, you know, when you heard him say in his victory speech, we are not enemies, you know, which was, after all, an echo, actually, of Lincoln's first inaugural. I mean, this is kind of the kind of cliche we usually look over, but right now it's downright radical to say that. And what I find interesting is that his approach to, to his own party has been that, I'll give you, a, actually, I'll, I'll let a, a, a progressive activist describe this better than I can. Sean McElwee, who has been, was really critical of Biden at the beginning of the campaign and ended up becoming one of his more vocal advocates. And what he said was, look, take, for example, AOC. He says, I'm a big AOC fan. And Sean said, look, AOC said, if we were in Europe, I probably wouldn't be in the same party as Joe Biden. And Joe Biden could have responded in a couple of ways to that. He could have said, all right, I'm now the winner of the primary, get lost. Instead, what he said was, all right, would you like to come in and help write my climate policy? So there's an approach to that, which is canny politics to say, I can't pretend I can run away from the left end of my party. I need to figure out a way to co-opt and absorb and build off of that side of things. And I think that's a piece of it now, but that's a different thing than saying, all right, AOC, you're now my closest advisor and I bring you into my deepest embrace. That's not what he's gonna do. I think what you're likely to see, and this is based on reporting, not speculation, is He's going to have his core group of advisors who have been with him for approximately 150 years. And yet at the same time, he is bringing into his administration in a serious way, the next generation of of thinkers and activists in a way that, that is inputting ideas into the policy process that wouldn't otherwise be there, but is not subjecting him to the constant possibility of what he would regard as a problem, which is, he would call it disloyalty, they might call it loyal opposition, but that's what he's, he's trying to you know, define his perimeter in a way that will allow him to have support, but not be immune to the reality of the diversity. And, and I, think that, I think that's the tension that's gonna be playing out you know, all next year. Totally. But starting with who's gonna be getting key uh, positions now. You talk about this core group. Uh, it's uh, Tony Blinken, uh, Ron Klain, uh, Mike Donilon. You know, we can all expect them. Uh, Steve Ruschetti. You know, all that will be the sort of core. He's the, he's the group. token uh, Italian in the Irish group. That's <laughs> okay, the big of it that way. <laughs> right, but. Who is going to be getting, you know, the key cabinet positions? Progressives are going to be demanding something. They're going to want a signal that he's going to be open to their perspective. Give us your own sort of, you know, insider dope sheet on how you expect this to play out. I think there's going to be this kind of curation where they're going to make, there are certain jobs that they feel like they can give to a progressive voice and other jobs that they won't. And I I think, 
you know, we can go into specifics, but I think the, the, the guiding principle to think about is how did, you know, Joe Biden takes pride in having been a vice president who did not run for office under kind of a, do a kind of crypto campaign while working for the president. That was not what he did. It takes a lot of pride in having been loyal, basically. His office was not known particularly as being leaky. It was not a place where they were going out and undermining Obama at the same time that he was working for him. That's what he expects essentially from people who work for him. And I think that's kind of a, a useful framing device to, to say, all right, well then now, now we can go to begin to look at individual offices and say, how would he regard, for instance, Elizabeth Warren as secretary of the treasury or a- that, That's not gonna happen. Not, I, I, not a chance, no way, not, no how. And, and in a, but you know, in a way, partly that's because Elizabeth Warren has a, she is obviously more progressive than he is. She also has this, you know, very capable and sort of fully evolved office. She would come in with her full bench, with a full team. If you're a president, you don't necessarily want to have to contend with that inside your house. So what you may do is you look for ways in which you can have progressives playing an important role, particularly on climate. I think that if you're going to take one area where that's an area that, now look, he's not Green New Deal. So you have to decide how to reckon with that if you're a progressive activist. I'll give you but I'll, a useful data point. Varshini Prakash, who was one of the co-founders of the Sunrise Movement, you know, really committed, thoughtful, young activist, said to me, she ended up on one of the task forces for climate. And what she said was, look, we are going to face a decision. If he ends up in office, we have to decide, do we chuck him overboard at the first sign that we disagree? Or do we try to find some middle path between being complacent and being righteous? That's for us the project. And I think that's, you know, the first, this is already happening when it comes to the beginning of not yet cabinet appointments, but, you know, advisors and commissions and so on, that there's going to be a decision. Do progressives say, all right, we're done with this guy? Or do they say, all right, let's continue to try to lobby and get inside as far as we can and get high up as, as far as we can? I want to follow up just quickly on this inner core of advisors, this kind of extended Biden family, because of something that you wrote in the book, which kind of resonated with me, and I think most listeners may not know about. And that is, you know, Biden has this, I think, well-earned reputation for his compassion and decency and warmth. And yet when you see him with his closest aides— it's not exactly warm and fuzzy um, all the time. And I got a chance to see that when I, I flew to Libya with him, I think in 2004, when he was going on one of these congressional delegations. It was just him actually going to meet with Colonel Gaddafi. And so I spent like nine hours on a plane with him and Tony Blinken and a very small number of, of aides. And they were working on that. The aides had, had drafted this speech that Biden was going to give a, uh, in, in the parliament there. And you know, these are very smart, very skilled advisors, foreign policy specialists, speech writers. And Biden comes back from the executive cabin to go over the speech with them. And man, he was really tough on them. Actually, what really struck me was how deferential they were to him. And now it is the sort of the culture of the Senate that staffers treat you with a certain amount of deference. But it was not what I was expecting. And then later on that trip, he spent, you know, a long time talking to me about how his how his aides are his family. <laughs> um, and so it was just kind of interesting to me. And you got to see a lot of this close up. So I'm curious your kind of take on on the on the actual relationship that he has with those close advisors. 
Yeah, it's a it's a really kind of interesting layer to him that doesn't usually get that much visibility. And I thought it was worth kind of drawing a little bit of attention to it is that, he, you know, he, to extend the metaphor, he, that's probably how he is with his family, too. I mean, right, they will. Right. They, they But what I mean is on a more serious level, he can be very tough on people who are aides to him who are particularly when they're briefing him on technical things or getting him ready for a speech in which he's worried about doing something wrong or getting something that's going to blow up in his face. He's very demanding. And this goes back to his early days in the Senate when he kind of got caught speaking about things he didn't know anything about and learned a lesson, which is he didn't want that to happen again. And he's, he's, you know, tends to kind of dial up a lot of prep work, doesn't always read it all, but calls for it. I know enough people who have worked very closely with him in those jobs who have stories of getting kind of, you know, a little bit of the rough Biden treatment when he feels like something didn't go well. And, you know, he'll say, never do that to me again. You know, one of the raps on him is that he'll spend more time and kind of lavish more attention on some stranger in a rope line than he will on somebody who has worked for him for 10 years, helping keep him in office. And, you know, what's interesting, though, is there was a, a book written a few years ago by Jeff Connaughton, who'd been an aide of his, who described him as a this kind of egomaniacal autocrat, I think I'm paraphrasing, but the, the spirit is right. And I, you know, people go back to that account sometimes because it was this unusual break from the usual kind of kindly grandfather image that we get. And, and it, it, there was truth in it. And but interestingly, you know, I referenced it not long ago in The New Yorker and Connaughton wrote to me afterwards. And he said, I'm, I, he said, I'm glad you mentioned it. I'm also glad you mentioned this, the good stuff I said about him, which was that after Connaughton became a lobbyist, he said, one of my frustrations was that I couldn't get anything out of Joe Biden. He would never meet with me or my clients. And it drove me nuts. And he said, I'm frankly sort of glad you, you included that, too. So that's who he is. Yeah. You know, you uh, have a chapter in the book called The the Lucky and the Unlucky, and you quote uh, his old friend Ted Kaufman saying, and this really left out at me, if you ask me who's the unluckiest person I know personally, who's had just terrible things happen to him, I'd say Joe Biden. If you ask me who's the luckiest person I know personally, who's had things happen to him that are just absolutely incredible, I'd say Joe Biden. And I was thinking about that because... One thought I had after it was clear he won the election is, my God, he is going to be taking office Mm -hmm. in the midst of a national emergency. These COVID numbers are going through the roof. You know, the economy is going to be really hit hard. And, um, you know, the magnitude of what he's going to be facing is off the charts. On the other hand, (laughs) the week after his election, Pfizer announces a vaccine that could finally save us from the COVID pandemic. So it just struck me right there. Lucky, unlucky, and lucky. There's no, it's absolutely true. There's this kind of sort of deep text to his life. It's a kind of the source code of his life is this really almost impossible series of events, beginning with the fact that he won his first race against somebody he never should have beaten, this colossus of the Senate. He wins by 3,000 votes. Caleb Boggs, Caleb Boggs, was his name, you know, not a, a name. Not a name on everybody's remember. now, yeah, but in, right. in Delaware in 1972, he was the ball game. And, you know, he'd held every major office. And, and then within weeks, of course, the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to you happened. And his wife and his daughter, his wife, Nelia Hunter, and his daughter, Naomi, were killed in a car accident. And then it has just been like that ever since. You know, he, he 
drops out of a presidential race, but in dropping out of the presidential race, he has also probably saved his life because he then suffered a series of aneurysms, two aneurysms, which the doctors told him if he'd still been on the campaign trail would probably have been catastrophic and he might not have survived. And it's just been one thing after another. And I, you know, I actually kind of got hung up on that issue as a really fascinating thing to explore how he in his mind reckons with that. And I, I ended up learning that one of the ways that he makes sense of it is that he has in his head a kind of homespun bit of philosophy that he basically, like a lot of things, sort of got from his father, which is that he believes everybody in their life has a certain ledger and that there, for every high, there will be a low. And the higher the highs, the lower the lows. And his life expresses that. And I think there's policy meaning in that because what he is sort of saying to us is that this life of scar tissue has shown him that nobody is the real author of their whole experience. You're not responsible for all your successes completely and you're not responsible for all your failures completely. And if you, you have to embrace that if you're gonna come up with a policy regime, whether we're talking about social services or capitalism or anything that matters that really reflects the reality of people's lives rather than the kind of ideological ideal of one or the other. Well, they called Bill Clinton the survivor. Mm. I think maybe that's a more apt name for, uh, for Joe Biden in kind of a more profound way. But mm -hmm. uh, anyway, Evan, it's a terrific book just for our listeners, Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. And uh, we're going to be looking forward to your coverage uh, of Joe, the Joe Biden presidency in The New Yorker in the coming months and years. And thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me okay. on. So while we've all been focused on the election and its aftermath, a lot has been going on on the COVID front, both alarming in terms of the uh, continued rise in the number of cases and potentially exciting with the news about a vaccine that may be close. And we have as our favorite guest to sort all this out for us, Dr. Kavita Patel. Dr. Patel, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks, Mike, for having me. Great to be back. So let's start out. None of us were expecting the news about the Pfizer vaccine to be quite as strong as it was. Uh, tell us what you make of this. Will there be a, it now looks like the vaccine is going to be available possibly very soon. How yeah. soon? Who will get it? Yeah. And what should people expect about where and when they can be vaccinated? Yeah. So let me start with the bad news first. The majority of Americans are still not likely to receive a vaccine until I would just say at best summer of 2021, probably later. And and then let me give you some good news. The good news is the announcement. I call it my I call it science by press release a little bit because all we have right now is a press release from Pfizer with some top line data and we are all still eagerly awaiting to see some of the detailed data, which we should get in the next several weeks. But what we know is that this incredibly novel technology, messenger RNA, which tries to make your and my body kind of react and develop antibodies to a protein, um, this messenger RNA vaccine, which has never been done before in humans for this purpose, 
looks like it can, it's pretty darn effective. That's based on just, again, that top line data. And remember what we will probably see in the next several weeks is Pfizer applying to the Food and Drug Administration for an emergency authorization. I'm caveating all of this because remember we had a hydroxychloroquine emergency authorization for a drug that shows no benefit. So we are excited by this in the scientific community. We will still need to see the fine print and continue the clinical trials to kind of make sure that we understand the long-term safety of, of these types of vaccines. Kavita, why would it take until the summer because, of 2021? Yes. Because there's not enough doses. So a couple of reasons. Number one, the agreement the United States has pre-purchased 100 million doses from Pfizer. But remember, it's a two-dose vaccine. That's about 50 million people. The highest priority populations are going to be healthcare workers like me, people in nursing homes, people who are at high risk of dying from COVID potentially if they get infected or could be exposed. And that gets you tens of millions of people you know, each month. This vaccine, along with the other vaccines in a similar category, have incredibly cold storage requirements. Pfizer's is the most extreme. It's negative 70 degrees Celsius. Those are freezer temperatures that most hospitals and clinics and pharmacies don't have. So what has to go into place is an incredible logistical kind of nightmare, which Pfizer has anticipated, but it, it, it creates a bunch of barriers, Dan and Mike, to getting a vaccine. And that's why I offer the very kind of cautious outlook about when regular Americans who are not in those special categories, can get a vaccine. So Secretary Azar was on TV this morning huh? giving a much more accelerated time yep. frame, uh, suggesting that by the end of the year, some people will start, will, will be starting to get it. I mean, is He's he, right, partly. You know? he, I mean, okay. I, I do think that some healthcare workers and really vulnerable people could start to get this vaccine at the end of the year. But look, we're already, it's November 10th. Pfizer still has to file an emergency authorization. Tony Fauci today also said that he expects Pfizer to do that in the next week or two. The FDA will turn that around, but they'll turn it around in about a week or two. That means we'll probably be in December when we see the initial vaccines being distributed again to those special populations. But Pfizer is in demand across the world. So Secretary Azar is correct in that we will start to see people getting vaccinated. But I do believe he was being a little bit overly aggressive in saying that all Americans will have a vaccine by March and April for all those reasons I just outlined. And, and that's why I would say summer to fall is more likely. And how you know, Pfizer tells us that the vaccine proved effective in 90% of the mm -hmm. cases. By the way, do we know how many cases yeah, were 94. in this trial? 94. It took 44,000 people to enroll to get 94 cases of coronavirus. And that just shows you the irony. They were enrolling people in trials when we had the lowest kind of incidence of coronavirus, unlike today. So yes, it was for 94 people, Mike. Wait, wait, so it's 90% of 94 people? It's 90, it's a little, we, we, I'm here, I'm making some assumptions because I've just seen what's in the press release. So what they're saying, however, is 90% efficacy. And what that means is that in people who get infected, it means that there was a 90, that 90% of them did not have the effects of COVID that we would expect if they did not have the vaccine. So we don't know exactly what that means until we see the detailed data. But the, 
initial group that reviewed the data, which led to the press release, said that those 94 cases were individually reviewed for safety, tolerability, and to peek into whether the trial was working. So that's why I, I, I offer you all this temperament that the 90% is incredibly promising, Mike, but that makes it sound like it's on par with the measles vaccine, which we all kind of do not believe. It would be more realistic to see other manufacturers, in addition to Pfizer, having something that's better than 50% efficacy, which is the bar the FDA has set. And so, you know, I'll take anything that's better than 50% myself. But I just want to make I sure I understand that. because 94 is People. obviously a lot less than 44,000. Right. So if we're talking about a universe or a sample of yeah. 94 people who did not have the effects of COVID after taking right. this vaccine, is that, uh -huh. statistically, how significant is that? We don't know. I mean, it's, what's statistically significant though, Mike, is uh, keep in mind, the other 43,906, <laughs> half of them got something. So half of them got a placebo, which is right. nothing, but half of them did get the vaccine. So I think important in that is looking for kind of lack of side effects. There were no serious adverse events recorded in that phase three trial of 44,000 people. About half of that 44,000, we still have to see a median follow-up of two months. So there are still patients in that 44,000 that we haven't completed our follow-up on. And there could be lurking in that, you know, 22,000 that we still haven't finished the follow-up on something that happens that's not, that's bad. So that's why I give you all these caveats and put a little bit of a tempering to some of the comments made by administration officials today. Kavita, let me just ask you this bottom line question. Assuming the efficacy rate is, is 90% and we get through the winter and spring mm -hmm. and get and, and ramp up distribution so you know essentially all Americans have access to this vaccine. Do you believe that means that after we get through this next year, that coronavirus, that we in this country will develop herd immunity and coronavirus will essentially wither away? Or what should Americans expect is going to happen over the longer term? Yeah, a more realistic view is to think about turning coronavirus into more like the influenza virus. So right. that's a little bit more of a realistic expectation, meaning we might need to find a way to be comfortable in America with a certain level of people dying, continuing to die, be hospitalized from COVID like the flu, but we will have vaccines and treatments like the flu where we have to get a shot every year at the height of the flu season now. And it gives us immunity for four to six months. And then next year we have to do the same thing all over again. There is a possibility that, you know, all of us are hoping, to your point, Dan, all of us are hoping this could be a one and done vaccine shot, right? That, that, that would be incredible. We're going to have to look for the long-term data to tell us that. But given the fact that this is a virus that acts like other respiratory viruses, it feels more likely for Americans to expect that, you know, by fall of 2021, winter of 2021, we're all going to just go and get like, we'll go get our flu shots and our COVID shots. And we'll still have patients that are getting hospitalized and some that die of COVID. 
but nowhere near the rates we have today and certainly not the restrictions. But Dan, you bring up an interesting comment I just want to make. All of us in public health feel like the part that's altered forever about our country is that wearing masks and doing some of the things that we've kind of gotten used to doing will somehow be incorporated into our day-to-day -day life. And I expect that we'll start seeing more people on subways and buses wearing masks just regularly out of habit no matter what is going on with COVID. But people that. will be able to, after this year, people will be able to have their Thanksgivings with Correct. their families, yes. their Christmases. Yes. Sorry, I should say the positive yeah. news is you and I, you know, will be able to make sure our kids are in school and have, and, and probably be able to go back into the workplace, be able to plan vacations and holidays. Uh, but I think that we'll be, you know, you and I would walk in America. We don't really walk onto trains and planes and see a majority of people with a mask on, a right. fabric mask. But I think right. we will as a result of this. This is happening. This is taking place in the middle of a, a transition, or at least it's supposed to be a transition. But the Trump administration has not been cooperating. I'm just wondering, you know, your Joe Biden, your incoming administration, your top priority is dealing with uh, this health emergency to what extent does the fact that this transition isn't really happening in the way it's supposed to happen, and there's this GSA official who's not willing to sign the certification papers, how much of a problem is that in this one area in terms of COVID? Because I'm wondering, I would think that incoming Biden administration officials would need to get all the information. They need data, information about, you know, about uh, supply chains. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that 100% your instincts are correct about all the same concerns. In fact, let's just kind of say, like, I rewind to when we were doing skullduggery months ago and we kept talking about, like, testing and tracing. But I think the Biden, you know, the COVID task force that's been assembled, 13 members, bulk of whom I know personally, incredibly smart people, best minds in public health, infectious diseases, et cetera. I think the one thing they can do that nobody's done to date, despite all the GSA transition and blocks and still allegations about voter issues to declare this election null and void, still just having con like consistent messaging. What you heard President-elect Biden saying yesterday by making an appeal personally for every American to not politicize a mask and to wear a mask and to think about everything is exactly the messaging we need. In fact, I'll be honest, just to give you a little, you know, it, it, I was a little disappointed. I was actually kind of hoping that the COVID task force would kind of broadcast aspects of their, to Zoom for God's sake. So, you know, I was hoping they would kind of broadcast parts of their briefing. I understand, but I'm looking forward to having the Biden-Harris team actually be the like public, you know, they could stream it on their website. And I bet you more media and reporters would tune in because everybody, including me, we're looking for that messaging, Dan. So their challenge is coming in. Um, I was joking with a friend who's involved in some of the transition work, and but I was half joking. I said, your jobs are so hard, Trump incoming, you know, resistance to the incoming administration, the pandemic, and kind of not being able to do this in person. I was like, but the third most like kind of difficult task for the transition is going to be the fact that the agencies that they're trying to transition to are skeletons. And the few people, the really good people that are there are hanging on by a thread. The morale in the federal workforce is so low that I said, you guys need to just come in with like Halloween candy or something because people are, <laughs> people are looking for something positive anywhere. So let's stick with the negative for a moment. We're, we have experienced over the last week the highest 
level of new cases you know we've had over a hundred thousand over hundred it's reached as high as hundred thirty thousand hundred twenty five thousand on Tuesday by the time January twenty rolls around mm-hmm. it looks like the cases we could be at what two hundred thousand this is after Thanksgiving after Christmas cold weather all the reasons people are will be spending more time indoors how bad is it going to be when Joe Biden takes that oath of office? And does that change the calculus about what he's got to do right away? Yeah. As president of the United States. Yeah, great. I, so I've thought about this a lot and looked at kind of the past two peaks. Remember, we're in our in many, some parts of the country, they've only had one previous peak. But overall, as a country, you look at the curve and we've had three. Or This is our third and generally speaking, the peaks last six to eight weeks. So you are right, Mike. In fact, I've said this and I've confirmed this with some you know, others that have been guests on this podcast that, yes, you're right, 150 to 200,000 cases a day. But we will be limited in knowing what the true cases a day are just by the simple the fact of like the number of tests available. So we are doing millions of tests a day but we're gonna kind of max out and burn out on how much testing we can do. And so I would say that we probably will have more than 200,000 cases a day given where numbers are going, but we will just not be able to detect them fast enough. And that will then subside. I expect that by inauguration, January 20th, that we will actually see that decrease, not to zero, but where we get hopefully to around 50,000 cases or less a day. What gives you that optimism that it would go down? No, it's just the cycle of the virus. It's the way... Honestly, it is, it's not me being optimistic. It's knowing that what happens is we're going up, 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 and you're going to see actions like the state of Utah and other states that have basically put into place stay-at-home orders, mask mandates. And so you'll see the effects of that, but it all takes time. And so that's why I think by January 20th, this isn't gone, but Biden will get a bit of a reprieve. I don't mean a, it's not a pass, but it's a bit of a reprieve to be able to do some of the things we're talking about. And then the name of the game in 2021 is vaccine and treatment distribution. I, I don't want to dismiss the fact that we've got monoclonal antibodies, we've got other treatments, hyperpurified plasma, not convalescent plasma, different, that are in trials and have incredible promise right now. But getting that to people, paying for it, and making sure that it's accessible to the very communities, you know, Black, Indigenous kind of persons of color, that is going to be the game, kind of name of the game in 2021. So you have been uh, an advisor to the Biden folks. We have heard that um, you might be in the running for some high-level positions. Uh, anything you can share on that front? Sure. I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm. I'm. Uh, as you know, I'm a friend of Skullduggery. I'm a horribly transparent person, yep. which sometimes doesn't make me the you know, best political choice. <laughs> but I, I, I have seen the same things you have, and I've had the same kind of reporters and people talking. I've been in this town long enough where I've seen that happen time and time before. So I will say this, and I'm not lying to you. I am happy to do anything to be a part of this, but I am not necessarily being kind of wooed and pursued for something. I think the thing that I would love to continue to do is work with people like you and Dan and Skullduggery. We're going to just need clear communication and questions being answered all the time. So I'm pretty excited about doing that. <laughs> but, you know, hey, D.C., you know, it's, it's uh, 
you know, just if you want the temperature to change, just wait a couple of hours right. because it will. <laughs> so we'll all right. See. Well, here's the deal, Kavita. This is what we're going to, this is the deal we are, we're going to offer you. All right. We're, we're not going to give you the full skullduggery treatment or the okay. Isakoff treatment. And in exchange, oh, I, thank and you. in exchange, not until you, you take office. When, <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. The, no, the deal, Isakoff, is that when she then does get oh, tapped to, to be secretary okay. of, uh, <laughs> right. you know, that she has to, no, then she has yeah, to talk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. got to give us an interview. All right, all right. Yeah, I'll go yeah, in for that's, that. Yeah. I, I, uh, I will 100%. I definitely don't. I, I would like to say I've tried to stay on the side of not getting the Isakoff treatment, but I'm, I am definitely, I am a friend and uh, honored that, you know, you guys do great. I think that you do, you have been filling a void when I candidly think that some of these things should have been addressed by the coronavirus task force, but hey, yeah. it's okay. We'll, we'll yeah. take it. Well, but you will, and you will we'll always be welcome regardless of what yeah. your uh, <laughs> other official duties are. This came up when we interviewed uh, Dr. Fauci a couple of weeks ago. I had asked him, um, is the COVID task force even still meeting? Uh, right. And he said, well, maybe once a week virtually. <laughs> and this right. was as right. the case numbers were kept going up and up. I remember. Um, and, uh, so, you know, since then, we've had Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, test positive. Pence is going on vacation. I, you know, what's what's left at the White House in terms of dealing with what is still a public health crisis? Frustration, honestly. I mean, it is incredibly frustrating People, I've talked to people on the inside who are working inside the White House. By the way, just to clarify, but one of the best podcasts, anyone listening, go back and listen, because I thought you both, I thought it was a great interview. And I thought Fauci said some things that you don't hear him talk about, just, just FYI. And I do think that something that's been important that hasn't been really identified, the task force has no staffing. Like everybody talks about like, oh, the task force, it was largely like this kind of meeting. And then it was, you know, handing stuff over to let Trump do what he did at the podium, which was insanity. So there's a lot of you're watching what happens in the White House in this time in December with an outgoing administration. We've got career staff that you've never seen on television and political people who are trying to preserve their jobs and their longevity. And they're reaching out and trying to say things, but nothing is happening on uh, dealing with these numbers. Well, look, Kavita, let me ask you this, because you, you worked in health policy in the Obama administration. You know a lot of the Biden people. Yeah. It, just in terms of managing this crisis and leading on it, how do you think the Biden administration will will handle it? And, you know, I think, for example, mm-hmm. you know, of Ron Klain, who's expected to be a President Biden's chief of staff, who led the Ebola response. He's obviously going to have a lot of other responsibilities. But what do you think the kind of the management style is going to be for dealing with this in a Biden administration? Yeah, look to Biden to actually take some page out of the Obama administration playbook Dan, and look for there to be a re- re- kind of a recurrence of some of the czars, like Ron Klain, considered affectionately as the Ebola czar. I think Dr. Vivek Murthy, an amazing individual, young, accomplished former Surgeon General, who's one of the co-chairs of the current task force for COVID, I look to see him to emerge as probably the COVID czar, for lack of a better phrase. Right, because they don't lack for talent. I mean, no. you look at that no. task force, you it's know, a, it's, an, it's an amazingly who? impressive group of people. Right. The question is, you know, you can have all the talent in the world, and if you don't have, if, if it's not organized, if if, if you're not, right. if you don't have someone who's leading 
then that may not matter as much. Yeah, so look for a couple of attributes, some features from the Obama administration, kind of the czars, but then also look to have some discipline. This is Biden of four decades plus in the Senate. Look to have some discipline about staffing out offices and agencies that can work with Congress. So, you, you know, don't look for necessarily just the Rhodes Scholars in each group, but look for people who have actually been battle-tested and, and veterans and have kind of walked the hallways know where you know know where the republicans are on certain issues and know how to get to the right people quickly i'm not expecting to see a lot of kind of new 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 faces but maybe some because we do need to balance diversity and gender that's you know we came in on a historic vice president black asian south asian female so look for a, some first mm -hmm. but look for a lot of like here's how we get the government moving back again to some normalcy I think being normal is going to be the theme of the <laughs> right. year. Like that's, um, that's the theme. Uh, but I yeah. am going to dissent a little bit because my uh, hunch is that one fallout from the long-running Russia investigation that has hung over the Trump mm -hmm. era is we may no longer have czars in uh, government positions. Okay, we might have a, you know, a, a COVID right. Codillo or right. general, generalissimo, right. Right. but right. not a... Hey, I, got right. I got I got a good Issachar reminder. <laughs> okay. And by the way, that was you recall though, Obama got a lot Mike, you were doing some great, you know, investigations back then on I mean, there were that fair it's crit, there was criticism all around of kind of having too many kind of affectionate yes. czars that had an incredible deal of power. Yeah. Right. So I you're right, that's <laughs> fair. But I do think I do think, and, and oh, and I should have said this because you did do the Fauci interview and talked about this. I fully expect that. Inauguration Day, Fauci may submit his resignation at the NIH as a career staff person and come in potentially. Although just the Tony Fauci that I feel like I've gotten to know over the decades, he is loyal to the NIH. Well, so well, well, why, would he, so much... why would he submit his resignation? It's a career. Oh, he can't be. Well, you could, I guess he could be detailed to be kind of technical with the government. You can't be a career staff person and just move on over to like a full-time political position. You would have to be detailed to something or resign and then take on a new job in the political kind of staffing. Right. So, I, I, yeah. That's if he were going to take over yes. the czar. But, but, he, but he could stay, he, yes. he could stay in his position. And yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, yeah. I guess everybody's been asking, well, why wasn't Tony Fauci named to the Biden-Harris COVID task force? Because Tony Fauci is a career scientist who's actually working right. for the NIH and he can't do that. And so. has a pretty important job. Exactly. No, yeah. that's all. I just, I, a lot of people have been asking me that, even yeah. people who understand DC. And I said, he yeah. can't work on the transition <laughs> yeah, task yeah, yeah, yeah. force. Right. But, but I expect him to work on this as soon as January 20th. And, and, yeah. and we expect one way or the other, you will as well. <laughs> I will <laughs> right. keep, I'll keep bugging Skullduggery. Right. We'll hopefully. be back to you. Kavita, yeah. thanks again for your insights. You. And we will definitely be in touch. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you, guys. Thanks, Take Kavita. Care.